0: We'll hear argument next in case 071356, Kansas versus Ventris. General McAllister.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The court has always held that a defendant's voluntary statements obtained in violation of constitutional standards may be used for impeachment purposes when the defendant testifies at trial. The court has excluded statements for all purposes only when they are involuntary or have been compelled. The question in this case is whether voluntary statements obtained in violation of the rule of Messiah versus United States should be treated differently than all other voluntary statements. The answer is no, for at least three reasons. First, permitting the impeachment use of voluntary statements obtained in violation of constitutional standards is necessary to prevent perjury by criminal defendants. Second, in terms of the effect at trial, there's no basis for distinguishing a voluntary statement obtained in violation of the Messiah Rule from Fourth Amendment violations, Miranda violations, or violations of the Rule of Michigan versus Jackson. In all of those situations, the resulting evidence may limit defense counsel's options at trial. But there's no basis in that respect for distinguishing a Messiah violation. It has no different effect than those others. Also, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel does not include a right to commit perjury or to have the assistance of counsel in presenting false testimony
2: when, when does when does the sixth Amendment violation occur
1: that question, your honor, as you realize is debated a bit in the briefs it's Kansas, for purposes of deciding this case, is willing to accept the position of the United States and the respondent that it occurs when the statement is admitted at trial, although the cases have not necessarily definitively resolved that question. We frankly think it's unnecessary to answer the question because it's a minimal point in terms of potential deterrents uh, that operate in what, this setting.
2: Do, do, you, do we have any other uh, situation in which uh, for purposes of impeaching testimony a constitutional violation
1: is allowed well that's the that, that's one of the intricacies of, of this particular question although arguably in the in the 5th amendment context certainly the the miranda warnings are given the police don't do that and 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 if that is the completion of the violation it it's analogous in many ways. If one looks back at the cases, the Court has suggested that the actual violation is the use of the statement at trial against the defendant, not simply obtaining it without the necessary warnings being given. So we would argue that isn't- it's parallel to the fifth. It's parallel to the fifth in this respect. Uh, and certainly distinct from the fourth in that respect, but we don't think it matters at the end of the day. If If one were to treat it like the Fourth Amendment, so that the violation is complete when the police send in an informant and he works hard to elicit statements in violation of the Messiah. Well, if it's completed at that time, then all of the analysis from the Fourth Amendment cases is equally applicable here. If the violation does not incur, occur until it's presented at trial, then it's analogous more to the Fifth Amendment and also to the Michigan v. Jackson and Michigan v. Harvey cases, which were a Sixth Amendment right to counsel violation, in which case the Court says it was wrong for the police to initiate interrogation after he'd invoked his right but we will let the statement be admitted for impeachment purposes. So it's also exactly analogous to what the Court did in Harvey itself.
3: It would make no difference, I take it, General McAllister, if this had been a police officer who was pretending to be a a cellmate. In this case, it was a snitch, but it could be the police officer doing inside the cell what he couldn't do outside. That is, the police officer outside wants to interrogate, must inform the arrestee of his Miranda rights. But inside the cell, police could pretend to be a jailbird, and they can can get the information that way, that
1: well justice Ginsburg, i believe that's correct if if it's for example an undercover officer someone's gone in in fact there are cases such as weatherford versus bercy that involved an undercover agent who was present for meetings with the defendant and his counsel and the court indicated that the presence alone would not violate the right to counsel it's the deliberate elicitation and use of statements obtained from the defendant that would violate the sixth amendment so if a a cellmate Another defendant is the informant who listens and hears. It wouldn't make any difference under the court's cases if, in fact, it was a police officer pretending to be a cellmate who listens and hears, just as it wouldn't, make, it wouldn't be a violation if there were a recording device in the cell and the defendant talked to himself, which there are cases of that, and it was picked up on the recording device. The mere listening, that goes to whether there's a violation at all, but the who... Uh, there isn't, it wouldn't matter for our purposes. So matter. the
3: police know that they, they can get around the clear prohibition on their questioning without Miranda warnings by pretending to be a jailbird.
1: Potentially, yes, but again, the, the violation would go to what happens in the cell. So if the police officer is pretending to be another defendant and sits in the cell and the defendant starts telling the officer things, that would not violate the Sixth Amendment at all under the. No,
3: I'm, I'm assuming we're not in the area where the, the jail mate is, is simply passive. In, in this case, the, the jail mate uh, made a statement that encouraged the defendant. Well, he wasn't just passive, he was encouraging the defendant to speak.
1: There is certainly testimony about what he was told to do and what he did it does not suggest aggressive efforts certainly to find out he, he may not have been completely silent but he certainly didn't say tell me what you did let's talk about your crimes but he did make one arguably suggestive statement to. But them.
3: anyway your answer is that a police officer could affirmatively elicit testimony
1: no, not that he could affirmatively elicit. That's the dividing line between Messiah and the Coleman case. If he was in the cell, well, I guess what I'm suggesting yes, is- Yes, but
3: you're, you're talking about impeachment only. We're not talking about the case in chief. So if the police, if he he can't outside when he questions the defendant and gives no Miranda warnings. That's inadmissible, right?
1: outside of well, it would still be admissible for impeachment. And we're asking for basically the same rule. So it would be the same thing if he were in the cell, deliberately elicits, knows he's violating Messiah. It couldn't be used in the government's case in chief, but it could be used for impeachment purposes. But that would be true of Miranda. If the officer deliberately failed to give the warnings, got a statement, they would not be admissible in the case-in-chief, but the Court's cases are very clear they would be admissible for impeachment purposes. So we're asking for the precise but you're, parallel. But you're
3: making no distinction then between the Fifth and the Sixth Amendment.
1: Well, there may be distinctions, in the, and there is a distinction in the text of the Fifth Amendment suggests actually a rule of exclusion when you truly have, when there truly is a compelled Statement and the court has recognized that in cases such as Portash, where the witness is given use immunity, testifies before the grand jury, and the government later tries to use it against him. The court says, No, you cannot use that testimony for any purpose. So, there is a difference between the sixth amendment and the fifth amendment in that respect. But what I'm suggesting is the way Messiah and Miranda operate is similar in this context that a violation. Results in suppression of the evidence from the government's case in chief, but it remains available for use as impeachment.
3: What about the argument that essentially this is like taking a pretrial deposition, only one side isn't represented?
1: Well, with all due respect to that argument, your Honor, we disagree with that. Uh, there are strong incentives for the police, frankly, not to do this. And in part, one of the reasons, well, there's two. One is the police know if this is truly in violation of the Sixth Amendment, then nothing can be used in the case in chief. So at most, it is impeachment if the defendant testifies and if the defendant testifies inconsistently with whatever is elicited. Uh, but furthermore, given the line the Court has drawn, between Messiah and Coleman and what goes on with the informant in the cell, if they can hear the statements without deliberately eliciting them, if you will. If the informant is present, the defendant wants to talk, starts chatting, they discuss the crime, those statements the Court has held in Coleman are admissible for all purposes because they are not a Sixth Amendment violation at all. So the police do have some, some strong incentives to actually try to gather the evidence, if they're going to, in a way that makes it usable in the prosecution's case in chief. There's much less value to having it solely for impeachment, which is always going to be speculative if it would ever even be used. It would depend on if the defendant testifies and if he testifies inconsistently with what he has told an informant. And in that regard, there are other deterrents I'd like to mention here as well. Uh, the, The informant in this case, for example, in jail recognized that he did not want to be an aggressive questioner or or obvious as a government agent. In fact, he said, I didn't really want to ask him questions because I was afraid if he felt I was being too nosy, I might get hurt. And so the informants have their own incentives to be careful here. Uh, And in this case, it's also important to remember that deterrence is simply one side of the balance. And the Court has said many times, even if there would be some deterrent effect, To extending the rule to include impeachment that doesn't answer the question whether it should in fact be excluded that still must be weighed against the costs on the other side and the court has numerous cases emphasizing the costs that are present on the other side of this case perjury by criminal defendants is a primary one but also cases talking about the importance of allowing the jury to hear the truth in the search for truth the jury here gets to evaluate and did I would argue quite effectively, from Mr. Ventress' standpoint, evaluate the informant's credibility. The jury was, un, was informed, cross-examination of the informant's circumstances, what benefit he received, who he was, all, all the things that they might want to know in deciding whether to believe him. His testimony went not solely, but primarily to the question of who was the shooter in the murder in the case, and the jury acquitted Mr. Ventris of the murder charge. So they did not believe, at least beyond a reasonable doubt, that he, in fact, was the shooter. Uh, and, and that is precisely how this should work. We're not saying informants are always 100% reliable. But we're saying the court has a long tradition, the country has a long tradition, of putting this evidence in front of a jury. It's tested by cross-examination, knowledge of what the incentives are, bringing that out in front of the jury. And then the jury decides. There are many of these cases where it's this was a typical one co-defendant saying he was the shooter, the other defendant saying no, she was the shooter, and the informant simply had information that was relevant to the credibility, and that's the way it was used in this case, was as impeachment on rebuttal to evaluate Mr. Ventress's testimony and whether the jury believed him or not. The other thing I would remind the court is We are simply saying the rule should be no exclusion under the Sixth Amendment for impeachment purposes, but that does not mean that the normal rules of evidence and other rules of trial procedure do not apply. They do, and they might well result in the exclusion of some potential informant's testimony. So if the government were to want to put on an informant who had been convicted many times of perjury, And the judge said, no, I just do not think this evidence is credible enough to even put in front of the jury, not this person. The ordinary rules of evidence and trial procedure would operate. Furthermore, as happened in this case, the judge can and often will give cautionary instructions, limiting instructions. All of that remains appropriate, but there's simply no reason to exclude the evidence as a matter of the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. It would be inconsistent, frankly, with with Really, the general tone and holdings of the cases in the the Fourth Amendment, Miranda, and even Sixth Amendment territory, uh, including primarily Michigan v. Harvey and Nix v. Williams. Uh, Unless the court has further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal.
0: Thank you, counsel. Mr. Harsky,
4: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this Court has consistently allowed the use of voluntary statements obtained in violation of constitutional standards for impeachment purposes, and that same rule should apply here. There's no question that respondents' statements were voluntary, and the substantial societal costs of allowing him to commit perjury unchecked greatly outweigh any speculative deterrence benefits that would flow from a per se rule of exclusion. The purpose of the right to counsel is to provide an adversary process to ensure the defendant gets a fair trial. And to effectuate that right, the Court has excluded deliberately elicited statements from the Government's case-in-chief. But not allowing the statements for impeachment purposes doesn't further that right. Instead, what it does is allow the defendant to distort the truth-seeking process, and that's just too high a price to pay.
0: Well, you say there's no uh, deterrent uh, value uh, since the police are, are not going to do this, that they know they're not going to be able to use this in their case in chief. But there's also no downside, is there? I mean, you say it's only for impeachment purposes, but, you know, why not? He he may take the stand. He may lie. Better to have this in the bank instead of
5: not.
4: But there is a downside. I mean, as this Court recognized in cases versus, like, Hudson versus Michigan, for example, the police have their own codes of conduct. They have training on constitutional rules and standards. And if they violate those constitutional rules and standards, it has real effect for the police. It has effect in terms of internal discipline, in, in terms of limiting their is career opportunities.
3: Is that verifiable? Do police officers who engage snitches, do they get discipline, especially if they are then able to accomplish what was accomplished here? That is the the, the testimony the, this snitch is then able to, to testify after the defendant testifies.
4: I don't think that there's any evidence in the briefs, and I'm not aware of, of specific instances of discipline, but I think that that's because this situation arises pretty infrequently. You know, and this came up in the Kansas Supreme Court. It was a case of first impression. And as uh, General McAllister noted, there are a lot of reasons why the police would want to just follow the rule in Coleman and send the informant in to be a passive listening post. Because At the, if the federal inter- level, is there anything one way or
3: another, any manual that
4: instructs
3: uh US attorneys about the use of
4: snitches to extract confessions. I think the Department of Justice manual sets out this court's rules in terms of the Coleman case and the Henry case. And then of course there are also um, state and the model professional ethics rules that talk about uh when a prosecutor can contact a person who's represented by counsel, and there are limitations there as well, both in terms of the prosecutor contacting a person represented or using an agent contacting a person represented. But, I mean, those are those are deterrents. I think the police discipline is a deterrent, but I think we also need to to focus on this Court's cases in the Fourth and Fifth and Sixth Amendment Jackson context, that taking the evidence and making it unavailable in the government's case-in-chief is a substantial deterrent. This Court said in each of those previous cases that not having the evidence available in the government's case-in-chief is a very high price to pay, because that means that the government has to come up with other evidence that can meet its burden of proving all of the elements of the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And as General McAllister noted, it's really very speculative. And the police certainly wouldn't know at the time that they're asking uh, questions of the defendant whether this rebuttal impeachment evidence could ever be used. It's entirely within the control of the defendant. It's only if the defendant, if the government first meets its burden of proof with other evidence at trial, and then the defendant decides to testify, and then he testifies inconsistently with his prior statements. And our position is at that point that the jury should hear the conflicting evidence, just as it's heard it in all of these other previous cases, and be allowed to make a decision about who's seems telling the truth. to me you're
6: just confirming the answer to the Chief Justice's question. There really isn't any downside. The worst, the worst that happens, maybe they can't use this stuff. But what, what, what's the downside?
4: Again, I, I think that there is a downside in terms of police discipline and the, the deterrence. Has any police
6: would- officer ever been disciplined for doing this, do you know? I, 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 I find I, it rather amazing if he has
4: Again, I think that most police officers just follow the rule that this court set forth in Coleman, so that it, this, this issue has not arisen frequently. But you know, even if you thought that there would be some type of minimal deterrence benefit that would arise uh, uh, from from not making the evidence available for impeachment purposes, you have to balance it against the costs to the truth-seeking process that would be incurred. Well, the defendant
6: sometimes why? but sometimes people who are in this position in prison are not the most trustworthy people either.
4: I think if you there are bring
6: that on cross examination, I understand that.
4: that. That is what I was going to say. I mean, as General McAllister noted, that that happened in this case. The prosecutor himself got up and talked about the, the informant's prior offenses, why the informant was in jail, whether the informant received anything in exchange for his testimony, the fact that the informant had actually gone back to jail after testifying uh, or after serving as an Seems informant. To in that, this all, case. that
6: all confirms the fact. Well, they have nothing to lose. Maybe we got one witness, who's not very persuasive, but no harm in giving it a try.
4: I think that the the fact that the evidence would be unavailable in the government's case-in-chief really is a strong price that the government pays, and, and this Court recognized it in, in Havens, in Walder, in Harris, in Haas, in Harvey, and in, in all of those prior cases. And there's just, there's not any reason to depart from them because the, the other side of the balance is that, you know, you're letting a defendant to get up and take the stand and, and not subject himself to this prior statement. And this, this prior statement, if believed by the jury, is incredibly important to his credibility, probative. Uh, with respect to the, whether the crimes were committed and the defendant is, is the If it is truthfully
6: reported, because it's always a, an, an issue of credibility in, in all these cases.
4: The, yes. The, every case has a question about someone's credibility, some witness's credibility, and that's for the jury to decide. And in, in this case, there was ample cross-examination. There was the limiting instruction that the State mentioned. I mean, clearly the jur- jury did its job here because it went back and it considered all this information, and it didn't come back with a, a verdict, although you, of course, n- never know exactly what the jury is thinking. It didn't come back with a verdict suggesting that just reflect- reflexively believed the informant's testimony. Mr. So.
2: I'm, I'm still a little hung up on, on whether we would be allowing a constitutional violation. Uh, General McAllister said that in the Fifth Amendment area, we we indeed allow uh, allow it to be introduced and in rebuttal, even though that is the actual constitutional violation. Is, is that the case, uh, other than in the Miranda situation? I mean, suppose you have a genuinely coerced confession. Would we would we permit that to go in? Uh,
4: Certainly not. In the Fifth Amendment context, the text of the amendment itself would prohibit. The use of that statement for any purposes.
2: Exactly. But, well, why why is it not that the case with the uh, uh, the right to counsel?
4: Because the text of the Sixth Amendment doesn't say anything about the exclusion of evidence at trial. What it does is it guarantees counsel for a purpose, and if and that purpose is to ensure an adversary process at trial. And if counsel is not afforded, then it's up to the courts but to it's, determine. its its meaning
2: is. is that counsel is guaranteed at trial, isn't that right?
4: I'm sorry, I missed the first question. It, its
2: root purpose is that counsel is guaranteed at trial. And here we're saying it's okay not to have counsel at trial so long as it's uh, refuting a lie by the defendant.
4: That's not true. I mean, certainly counsel is available at trial. The question is just whether statements that were obtained without counsel prior to trial can be used for impeachment purposes. The answer — So
2: you say that you say the Sixth Amendment violation occurs before trial?
4: I'm sorry if I suggested that. No, the Sixth Amendment violation occurs when the statements are introduced in the government's case-in-chief at trial. trial. And that's because the government should not be allowed to go behind counsel prior to trial and gather up statements and then use them to prove guilt at trial. That subverts the adversary process. When you're talking about impeachment, you're not talking about proving guilt at trial. You're not talking about the government distorting the adversary process. If there's any distortion of the adversary process, it's with the defendant attempting to commit perjury at that point. The Sixth Amendment is just different from the Fifth Amendment in that it does not say anything about statements that are obtained and if they can be used at trial. And that means that it's up to courts to balance the costs and benefits of exclusion of evidence. And in the case of the government's case-in-chief, that balance means that the statements cannot come in because it would be too much of a cost to the adversary process. That the Sixth Amendment guarantees to allow the statements in. But when you switch over to looking at impeachment, this Court said 50 years ago impeachment is a very different story than the Government's case in chief. The interest that you're talking about furthering there, the adversary process interest, would not be furthered by allowing the defendant to take the stand and be able to commit perjury unchecked. It would not be furthered and it would it would not lead to greater deterrence by simply allowing the statements to be unavailable for impeachment purposes, because the great deterrent comes with the statements being unavailable in the Government's case-in-chief. We just don't think that there's any reason to depart from this Court's rule that so long as statements are not involuntary, they can be used for impeachment purposes. There are no further questions. We submit the judgment below should be reversed.
0: Thank you, Counsel.
7: Mr. Edge? MR. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I guess I have basically uh, three arguments with the — or problems with the State's position. First of all, what we're dealing with in the Sixth Amendment case here is a violation of a core enumerated trial right, and this makes it a very different animal from all the other cases that we're talking about. If we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, we 're talking about something that isn 't a trial right it 's simply a right of the people to be secure in their in their homes and uh, possessions. The violation occurs when the police commit whatever misconduct uh, makes the search of the evidence illegal. But the use of that tra- uh, of that evidence at trial doesn 't work any further constitutional
5: wasn 't this individual represented by counsel was he represented by counsel? <laughs> Yes, he was. And he was represented by counsel at the time that the informant took the statement. He got the statement elicited.
7: Uh, Is that right? Uh, uh, no. He was uh, I don't think so. Uh, I, my memo that I've looked
5: through carefully, uh, but I'd be quite interested. I, I thought he, he asked for counsel. He was given counsel. Subsequent to that, the statement was elicited. I'd, I'd like to know that, as the Sixth Amendment says you have a right to assistance of counsel in your defense, period. And I guess if he had a lawyer, uh, the lawyer could have told him, don't talk to informants in the jailhouse. He could have said, well, I'm going to talk to who I want, uh, or he might not have. But I'd be interested in knowing, did he have the assistance of counsel at the time the statement was It was uh, elicited? It's one thing to me if he did, another if he didn't. You don't know.
7: No. How can I find out? <laughs> no, the uh — I don't know exactly the day that this happened uh, i do know that he was arrested on the 16th of january 2004 and there was a search of his cell on january 20th and we know from that testimony that why that's relevant is that he was cellmates with mr dozer by that time And mr dozer testifies that he was the cellmate of mr ventress for two days and on the second day mr ventress supposedly made these statements So my best guess is that this conversation occurred sometime between the 17th and the 20th. Now, the order appointing counsel is entered on January 21st, and uh, counsel doesn't enter his appearance until January 27th. So
5: it might be he'd asked for counsel but hadn't yet received counsel?
7: Uh, Correct, Your Honor.
0: Counsel, do, do I understand uh, the first sentence on page six of your brief to concede that there's no deterrent value uh, from prohibiting the introduction of these statements for impeachment? <laughs> the sentence says a Sixth Amendment exclusionary rule that allowed use of uncounseled statements for impeachment would, <clears throat> would not deter violations of the right to counsel.
7: That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. Um, and the reason I believe this is that. <clears throat> As long as there's some kind of incentive for the prosecutor to use informants in this manner, then the only, then even if they're not usable in the case in chief, there's still an incentive to use this kind of evidence, and the prosecutor and the police will attempt to obtain it. There's simply very little downside. Uh, The prosecutor instructs the informant not to deliberately elicit the statement. The prosecutor is still responsible for the uh, informant because the informant is his agent. So, even if when the informant goes ahead and deliberately elicits the statement, it's still a constitutional violation. Um, but uh, so long as you allow it for some kind of purpose, then there isn't a deterrent effect. And there was so
8: in the situation like we have here, where it, uh, the law enforcement officers do not instruct the informant to do anything that would violate the Sixth Amendment and, in fact, according to their testimony, instruct him to engage in conduct that's consistent with the Sixth Amendment. There's no deterrent value in later suppressing uh, the use of the statements for impeachment purposes.
7: No, I mean, I guess uh, maybe I'm confused. I think there is a deterrent uh, – there is a deterrent effect from suppressing it in the case of Chief, it's, but it's not sufficient unless it's also extended to re, the use and rebuttal as well.
8: What, what do you want to deter? Do you, you want to deter them from using informants at all, even in, even in a manner that's consistent with the Sixth Amendment?
7: Uh, no, Your Honor. Uh, what I'm attempting to uh, deter – is the sort of upending of the adversarial system that this represents. And there was a question uh, that was presented uh, earlier about when does this violation occur? And I think that gets to the manner of the, the nature of a Sixth Amendment violation. And our contention is that the violation occurs when the statement is extracted, and then it's further aggravated when it's used at trial. When the police obtain this, these kinds of statements, even if they're not used at trial, it does work a harm on the defendant and his relationship with counsel. It affects. A defendant's I, I see the harm. I, I
5: wonder if you have an answer to another question. You may not. I can't find it. Seems to me it's been 20 years since this, nearly 20 since the court decided the Michigan case. Uh, the other cases were decided even earlier, and it's just surprising to me that it's never come up or rarely, rarely come up. But. The, 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 uh, the question of whether the, the, the State can introduce into evidence a, 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 a statement made when the State questioned an individual who'd asked for counsel or had counsel out of the presence of the counsel. I mean, d- does that normally happen or is it never happened? Is, why is there so little law in it? Have you any idea?
7: I do not, Your Honor. Uh, and I'm, I'm really kind of at a loss to speculate as to why that would be.
0: You, you agree with the representations on, uh, from your friends on the other side that there's no case of ours where we've excluded statement or evidence uh, submitted for uh, impeachment, even though it would have been excluded in this case in chief? You prevail here. It would be the first time that any evidence or statement has been excluded when submitted for purposes of impeachment.
7: Um, it would be a very different rule. Um, I think the only rule that this would be the case so far is, is uh, in Portash with the self-incrimination clause, and we're saying that uh, the same type of rule should apply to the Sixth Amendment. Uh, otherwise, no, that, that's correct whenever you're talking about uh, the Fourth Amendment or one of the prophylactic rules like Miranda or Jackson, uh, then they are admissible for impeachment purposes. What makes this case different is that it, it uh, involves a violation of an enumerated constitutional trial right.
5: That's what I'm sorry. not certain about. And this is why I've been asking these questions. What I can't figure out in my own mind is this. I ask for a lawyer. The state has some period of time to give me a lawyer. Now, it's one thing if what's going on is once I ask for a lawyer, the state should deal with me through my lawyer. So that's how they're supposed to do it. But that isn't as basic. That's like a rule of ethics in most states in the civil context, in other contexts. That's not as basic as if I ask for a lawyer, and then the state just doesn't give me one, though it should. That's a different violation, a different kind of violation. One is a kind of rule of ethics incorporated into the Constitution. The second is what the case is. Is what the Constitution is really about? Give him a lawyer when he asks for one, and which is this case? Uh, th- th- that's why I'm, I'm having a hard time. Is it the, the first or the second?
7: Well, and I think one of the complicating factors here, Your Honor, is that the. Uh, State in this particular case didn't try a straightforward interrogation. They send in an undercover informant. No, no,
5: but that, that — you know, I'll, I'll amalgamate that for you. I'll say they're exactly the same thing. But what I want to know is what rule was violated, what Sixth Amendment rule. The rule — you know, you heard what I said, the rule. Don't talk to a guy who wants a lawyer until you talk to the lawyer. No communications with a client. It's a communication with the lawyer. That's one rule. And the other rule is he's asked for a lawyer, but you never gave him one. Now, which is this case? I mean, I first thought, well, if he didn't have a lawyer at all, it must be the second. But then I thought, they must have a reasonable time to give him a lawyer. They haven't violated that second. Do you have any view on that, it would be helpful to me.
7: I don't know whether he had asked for a lawyer or not. Um, I know that he was entitled to one at the time, and one would be appointed for him. Um, but but was- you
3: do know that, unlike the police giving Miranda warnings, there's no warning here at all. I mean, he thinks he's talking to a cellmate. Nobody tells him, remember, you've got a right to be represented by counsel, and he's essentially giving a statement without the Miranda warning.
7: That's correct, it's, Your Honor.
3: But the other side says, well, practically, the defendant is much more likely to say something that's really involuntary when he's confronting police officers, uh, that the reason that we exclude, in the case of a police officer, is the intimidating setting when the defendant is in the police station or in the cell, and there are these police officers. Now he thinks he's just with a cellmate, so there isn't there isn't the coercive atmosphere that there is when the police do the questioning.
7: Well, Your Honor, um, I think that there certainly can be um, a coercive atmosphere, even if you're not talking to a known police agent. Now, those aren't the facts of this particular case, and there is no claim uh, that the statement was involuntary. However, one of the advantages of speaking to known police officers is that a defendant can simply end the interrogation by invoking his right to counsel. And that is not necessarily a course of action that's available to him if he thinks he's merely talking to his cellmate, somebody whom, uh, whether he wants to speak to him or not, he's going to be in the same cell with him for some time. Um, also, you, you
0: emphasize that what distinguishes this case from the other ones where we've allowed evidence that would be excluded from the case-in-chief and for impeachment purposes is that this is a trial right. But, I mean, the Sixth Amendment says in criminal prosecutions you have the right to the assistance of counsel. Well, he had assistance of counsel here, and, and one of the things that counsel did was point out the uh, uh, problems with relying on the snitches, uh, evidence, and all the bad things that he did. But, but uh, just like in the case of a Fourth Amendment violation where we allow the evidence to be admitted at trial, this Sixth Amendment problem uh, uh, you know, it doesn't — I just don't see the, the strength of that distinction.
7: Your Honor, uh, I think it goes to the nature of the harm that comes from a Sixth Amendment violation. Uh, the Sixth Amendment simply doesn't limit itself to the trial. Uh, the, the exact wording of the, the um, constitutional provision is in all criminal prosecutions.
0: Well, it seems to me you're getting about- away from the basis for your distinction, then, saying, well, it's not just a trial. Well, these other constitutional rights where we've uh, allowed the evidence to come in for impeachment uh, are indistinguishable from the Sixth Amendment right outside of trial.
7: Well, because the harm isn't something that just uh, affects the outcome of the trial, it also affects the the litigation in a much, much deeper way. It affects — uh, counsel's trial strategy. It affects a defendant's decision whether or not to testify. It also well, Just to
0: pause on that, it affects his decision to testify because it makes it more likely he'll testify truthfully if he's going to testify. So no, no, me, the focus, the focus on the trial context is at least a, a double-edged sword since the harm that we're facilitating under your, your rule is to allow, allow perjured testimony.
7: Yes, Your Honor. In some contexts, it would. Uh, I think one of the underlying assumptions of the State's argument uh, with regard to perjury is that the mere existence of a prior inconsistent statement is necessarily indicative of perjury. And we know that there are many reasons why a defendant may have given a prior inconsistent statement. Yeah, and if
0: he has the assistance of counsel at trial, consistent with the Sixth Amendment, those those, uh, problems can be pointed out. He wasn't he was he's not lying now the reason he said something different then was you know he, he likes to brag in prison or whatever the basis is
7: in some cases it will be possible for counsel to vigorously cross-examine the informant in others it may not uh, but in addition to that your honor i would also say that it doesn't simply affect the decision of whether or not to go to trial or whether or not to testify at trial It also affects the litigation in a very deep way in as much as the defendant is burdened in trying to negotiate a favorable plea deal. Uh, Every statement or every piece of evidence that the state has affects their willingness to plea bargain, and when the state (coughs) obtains this kind of evidence illegally, it puts the defendant in a bind towards — Oh, I think
0: that's that's quite right, but I don't see how — Excluding the evidence even on impeachment helps that. I mean, they've still got the statement. And they, you know, I, I guess your point is, you know, maybe they'll get some leads from it even if they can't use it. Well, but excluding the ev- evidence for our impeachment purposes doesn't uh, eliminate that harm.
7: It would, Your Honor, in as much as it would remove any disincentive for the police to obtain this evidence uh, by this manner in the first place. Uh, So there would be that marginal deterrent factor.
8: which of the things that you've just said that result from the use of this for impeachment would not be true with respect to the other situations where illegally obtained evidence has been used for impeachment purposes? Take the Fourth Amendment, for
7: example. I think they would be largely the same, Your Honor. The difference would be in the interest protected. Uh, The self-incrimination clause in the Fifth Amendment uh, is aimed primarily at The coercion of the defendant, whereas the Sixth Amendment aims primarily at the preservation of an adversarial process, that relationship between counsel and his attorney.
8: You don't dispute that there was a Sixth Amendment violation at the time when the statement was taken, do you?
7: No, I do not.
3: You urged a fallback position. You said at at least there should be a determination by the judge that the defendant intentionally testified falsely. And I was wondering how that would operate. You're here in in the heat of trial, and the prosecutor says, I want to call snitch so-and-so and And then what do we do just interrupt the trial and have kind of a mini trial to test the credibility of of the informant
7: yes you could your honor Uh, also you could have it as part of the uh, pre-trial suppression hearings Uh, i would anticipate that uh, even if the if the court were to adopt our position these kinds of Sixth Amendment cases are still going to be litigated, the issue is simply going to be whether or not uh, the the State's or the uh, police agent is deliberately eliciting the statement or not. So there's likely going to be some kind of uh, pretrial litigation regarding the admissibility of the statements, and it could be handled at that time. If there are no further questions for the Court, I will yield my remaining time.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. McAllister, you have six minutes remaining.
1: <coughs> Two quick points uh, by way of rebuttal. The balancing of the interests here is, frankly, water under the bridge, even in the Sixth Amendment context. In both Nix v. Williams and Michigan v. Harvey, where the Court was dealing with Sixth Amendment interests and and Sixth Amendment right to counsel violations, (coughs) both of those cases make clear that the question of what exclusionary effect to give a violation is subject to a balancing analysis, and that's what we're asking for here. That's why it's treated for these purposes like the Fourth Amendment and the Miranda context. And Nix itself, to paraphrase the Court, makes a fundamental point which I think illustrates How this works, and it worked effectively to the defendant's advantage in this case. In Nix v. Williams, the court said the Sixth Amendment right to counsel, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, protects against unfairness by assuring an adversary process in which proffered evidence is tested by cross examination, and it's done in front of a jury. It is not about requiring the exclusion of entire categories of witnesses or types of evidence for all purposes. So the right to counsel was exercised was exercised effectively in this case when Mr. Dozier was strongly cross-examined by defense Wouldn't
6: that counsel. argument apply equally to use of the statement on direct?
1: It, it could, Your, Your Honor. I realize the logical extension is you could say just test all of it, but that's where the, the police here and the prosecutor paid the price of the way in which the evidence was obtained. It's excluded from the government's case in chief. Unless there are further questions, we would respectfully ask that this Court reverse the decision below.
0: Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.